This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Well, in summer, after, after Castro came and, and everybody was exuberant about every good things that happening and so on, there was a whole lot of violence already. I mean, shooting all the people who had been for the previous regime and some people who hadn't been but were accused of having been. You know, it took me so long to get out because we had to fill so many papers to, to get back to Yale that next Christmas I didn't go home because I was afraid that I would not be able to come back in time for classes. Hmm. So, so that means that my last visit to Cuba for years and years were in, in, in 59. This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. Yo, I am still in awe that I get to share with you my conversation with the one and only the legend, Dr. Justo Gonzalez. Just to name all that he has accomplished would be a podcast in itself. But let me just give you a few pieces. Dr. Gonzalez has been a leading church historian and theologian who has amplified the voice of the Hispanic church for over 30 years. He has lectured and taught at the most influential theological institutions around the world. He has also written over 100 books, perhaps the best known of which are The History of Christianity and History of Christian Thought. Dr. Gonzalez was also involved in the founding of AETH, the Association for Hispanic Theological Education, as well as the Hispanic Theological Initiative and the Hispanic Summer Program. You can find out more about Dr. Gonzalez and AETH in the show notes or by going to whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Please join me as I ask Dr. Justo Gonzalez, where you're from? I was born in Cuba. And I grew up in Cuba most of my early life and uh, went to school there and went to seminary there and then came to the U.S. to study and then uh, uh, history took over. (laughs) Were you the only child in your family or did you have other siblings? Where were you in the birth order? Well, there were two brothers, my my older brother, Mm -hmm. who was five years older than myself. We rented a big, huge place in the upstairs of a furniture factory and and that meant that whenever anybody, uh, aunts, uncles, whatever, needed a place to be, they came to our place. So there were just four of us in what you would call a, a nuclear family now, but there were always a couple of aunts and uncles and, and cousins. But uh, both my father and my mother were sort of the mainstays of their own sides of the family. So whenever one of their brothers or sisters needed some help, they came to us. So it was, it was a fun place. Okay, great. So it sounds like that must have been a really fun environment to grow up with, just playmates all around and all the time. What about your parents? Tell me a little bit about them. My parents uh, eventually were both ordained United Methodist ministers. Mm -hmm. My father was a a revolutionary. He grew up uh, very much influenced by Trotsky and Trotskyism. And uh, he always had that sort of left-leaning 
inclination in him, mm -hmm. uh, which didn't ever come to being in favor of Castro, but he always felt that social change was necessary. Mm. And uh, he worked at that. Uh, when the revolution in which he was one of the leaders won and he was offered any position he wanted, he said, well, no, what I want is in, in the Department of Agriculture, I want to have an office whose job would be to talk to all the scientists and then write that in ways that peasants can use it. <laughs> and so that was always his, his, uh, his, his thing. How do you make knowledge available to people who really can use it and improve their lives with it? And uh, my mother was an educator. She was the principal of the school where I went for all my primary education. <laughs> That's how I got to go there because it was a very expensive private school which we could never have afforded. But later, uh, after uh, the revolution, when they left Cuba and they settled in Costa Rica where they began a program of uh, literacy. They have been dead now for quite a few years, but still the program is booming all over Latin America and in Africa, and they have millions of people learning how to read, and that's part of their heritage. Wow, that's fascinating. So there's a history of of both education and social impact that mm -hmm. I can still see in you. So, mm -hmm. you know, help me understand, like, the big moment, you know, in the in the 50s going into the 60s is the Cuban Revolution. But a lot of us don't understand what was the social context out of which that moment emerges. So maybe if you could paint a picture, what was it like to grow up in the pre-revolution Cuba? And maybe what were some of the issues that were going on that made it, you know, receptive or susceptible yeah. to what happened afterwards? Well, I think uh, it's a very complicated issue. And uh, let me tell you, for many years, I did not talk about that because when people ask me about the Cuban revolution, what they really were asking me was not about the revolution. They were asking me about myself so they could classify me and uh. figure out who I was. You know? so they said, what do you think about Castro? But they really want to know is, who are you? <laughs> Got it. The, the political situation in Cuba before Castro was uh, very bad. In some ways, it was a colony of the U.S. There were all kinds of issues that people were very unhappy about, both in the international scene and in the national scene. In the national scene, nobody ever lost an election. <laughs> if you lost an election, you said you didn't lose and you kept on fighting, and that meant that you could never have a working government uh, mm -hmm. because there was always somebody who was saying, no, that's not a legitimate government. And then we had a coup d'etat where Batista took over, and he was very much supported by the U.S., and that created some stronger feelings about the U.S. And uh, there was a, a widespread corruption in government mm -hmm. and in industry and in, in economics and in everything, uh, it was just a matter of who had money to be able to make more money. And minorities, mostly people of African descent, and, and also peasants uh, who were mostly of Spanish descent and, and Indian descent, but mostly Spanish. And uh, they were very much at the edge of everything and had no voice. And when Castro came saying that he was going to give him a voice, obviously that was very popular, and he gained a great deal of power out of that. Mm. Do you remember, you know, as a 10, 15 year old, 18 year old, did you feel like the country was in tension or were you not really aware of it at the oh, time? Oh, yes. Yeah, you felt it in several ways. Every once in a while there was a shooting. You mm. knew as a kid that if somebody with a military uniform came by and said anything to you, you better take it mm. because uh, otherwise you were in deep trouble. Okay. I knew older friends 
who would be walking down the street with a girl and some man with a uniform would come and start saying all kinds of improper things to her mm. and there was nothing you could do about it, you know. Mm. So you saw it in little things. Yeah, yeah. So in the midst of that, obviously your parents were ministers, so you grew up in a church in a Christian environment. But was there a moment where the faith became real to you? Yeah, yeah. I was a teenager, and I had heard, uh, I don't know how many evangelistic preachers, and I had known how many times I've gone up to the altar and all that kind of thing. And uh, then one day in school, a classmate who was not particularly known for his virtue or his good behavior or his orderly life came and said, hey, I hear that you are a Protestant. What's that about? And we sat in the library. We're not supposed to talk, but we talked. And I told him the sermon that I had heard all the time, and it worked. <laughs> and he changed. And I said, hey, you know, this is for real. <laughs> and that's why I have always found the story of Peter and Cornelius so so significant, because mm-hmm. Peter has no idea what he's doing. But when he sees that he works in Cornelius, something happens to him. <laughs> <laughs> that That's so interesting. So it was almost like part of your story of coming to a deeper faith involves you sharing with someone else coming to a deeper faith, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you said you were in your teenage years when that happened. At what point did you decide to study, you know, theology? A couple of years after that. Okay. And uh, so then, then I went over to seminary in Cuba. There, there is a United Seminary there that at that point was run mostly by the Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and Methodists. And that's where I went to seminary. So in the midst of that, because there's so much civil unrest going on, you know, you have a father who clearly is interested in social impact and social change. Did that mm-hmm. trickle down into you? Or why did you think seminary and theology was important for you to study? Well, at that point, at the very beginning, I was more interested in being a minister than in studying. Okay? <laughs> so I went to seminary because that's what the church required. I mean, okay. And while I was there, many, many things happened that, that changed, changed my life in many ways. But uh, I did not go to the seminary because I wanted to study. I must say, I, I did want to study in a sense. My brother also was in seminary, and he was two years ahead of me. He would come home and tell us stories about things and so on, about what he was telling us. I found some of that fascinating. Hmm. And sometimes he got me into trouble. Let me tell you a story. At that time, in the Methodist Church in Cuba was united with the Methodist Church in Florida. So the Bishop of Florida was also the Bishop of Cuba. And uh, he was visiting, and he was having dinner with us at the house. And he said that he had to go back to Florida because he had to make appointments. And that was very difficult because he had to figure salaries and, and some big churches wanted certain pastors and, and how he worked that and we got that together. And being still a teenager, <laughs> I said, you know, my brother's telling me about this thing that they were studying in seminary about when people would buy positions in, to have churches and then, you know, people become a bishop by buying the bishopric or become a pastor by buying the parish. And they said that they call that simony. And what difference is there between a pastor buying a church and a church buying a pastor. And I got the biggest kick under the table. (laughs) (laughs) And you weren't even trying to cause trouble. You just, your natural. I was just just saying, I I want to understand. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) was there any response? (laughs) No, no. uh, Well, the weather is not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
Okay, so you you said that there were some big things happening in the seminary. What what were the things that were happening? Well, the things that were happening in the seminary, several things happened. I mean, when you're talking about political issues and so on, okay. I was in the second year in seminary when a group of revolutionaries attacked a military place just below the hill from the seminary. We could see from up there, mm. and we, we were peeking over the, the walls and, and, and seeing people... Uh, running and shooting and all that. And next morning, there were all these pictures of all these people who have been killed. And you could still hear uh, the hunting of people who were now fugitives all over the city. So obviously, that, that does something to you mm. about what you understand and so on. Uh, it was also in seminary that I became interested in history. My least favorite subject when I was a student before that was history. I hated history. And it was in seminary that I became interested in history. So I think those two things were combined were part of it. What changed that made a subject that you previously hated something that you were now interested in? A man who later was my professor, whose name was Karl Barth, <laughs> uh, he wrote a big book that's called The Church Dogmatics. And I began reading that in my first year in seminary. And the very first page, he quoted all kinds of people that I had no idea who they were. And I went back and began finding, who are these people? And I found they were interesting. There were all kinds of things that he was not just thinking out of his head. He was thinking within the tradition. He was connected with a wide variety of people in the past that somehow shaped him. And he knew how they had shaped him and so on. And I said, you know, the, it seems like the only way you can really not just do theology, but the only way you can really understand yourself is through a history. Mm. And so I began getting interested in history. And that, that was basically where I began moving in that direction. Those are two very significant moments happening at the same time, the social unrest in Cuba and this light bulb that goes off in your own mm -hmm. mind about the importance mm -hmm. of history. At that time, do you think that they were related? Was there some depth of you wanting to understand history to understand the maybe chaos that was happening around you? I think so, because you can understand what was going on without going back several generations. Mm. Uh -huh. in Cuba itself, you know. And decisions have been made years and years before that now were affecting what was happening. So, yes, that's why history was not just a history of ideas, which was what I got from Bart mostly. It's also the history of social relations and, and events and, and how people organize society and so on. Got it. Okay, so you, you get this fascination with history, and this is literally happening at the same time that this revolution is taking place in your own backyard, literally in the backyard of the seminary that you're in. Mm -hmm. How does what is happening in Cuba maybe shape or affect what you do once you finish seminary yourself? Well, <laughs> in a very practical way, perhaps, because one of the things that happened when I was about to graduate, the cabinet, uh, no, the Methodist churches run by the bishop and his cabinet. Mm -hmm. And uh, the cabinet called me and they said, we have decided... You know, you're supposed to be appointed someplace, so we had decided to appoint you to study. <laughs> I, I suppose I had something to do with my grades and my work at seminary, but I think it also had to do with <laughs> my rather radical preaching that I had begun to develop after those events. Uh, the week after that big shootout, I went uh, and, and preached on the need for a revolution, <laughs> meaning all kinds of things. I probably wouldn't have said exactly the same thing now, but I, I think... <laughs> They were not only thinking that I should be teaching, but they also were afraid of what I might do or what might happen to me. So they sent me to study abroad. Uh -huh. And uh, I came to Yale because I was just obeying the bishop. 
Wow. <laughs> That's quite a sermon, a sermon that moves you from Cuba to Yale. <laughs> uh, um, so, so you get to Yale and I mean, that's an extraordinary different cultural set of circumstances, Connecticut, New Haven to Havana, Cuba. <laughs> Tell us about what your experiences were. I don't know. Had you ever been to the States before and what was it like to be there? Yeah, I had been to the States before because my parents were both educators also. And uh, the schools where they taught, uh, most of the students were pretty high class uh, socially. And so, so that we could do it, every year they will bring a plane load of Cuban kids to summer camp in North Carolina. So we will spend uh, oh, a couple of months in the mountains of North Carolina. Hmm. So if you want me to call, I say, square dance for you, I can. I mean, <laughs> round a couple, take a little peek, back to the center and swing your suite. Because <laughs> I grew up that, with that. So, so I have been in the States before, but you know, you know, as a kid, uh, mostly to play, to be in the summer camp. Uh, and the difference here was basically I, I was younger than most of my classmates at Yale. And uh, New Haven now is not what it was then. At that point, to find somebody in New Haven who spoke Spanish, you had to do quite a bit of looking. Uh, <laughs> when I said I was from Cuba, people would say, where, where's that? You know. Wow. <laughs> So it's it's a different experience. I never felt at Yale that I was in any way discriminated. Mm. Now in town, yes. In town, you go into a store and start looking around, and somebody could always come and say, "May I help you?" And whatever they meant, you could tell is, "What are you doing here?" You know, mm. I'm watching you. <laughs> so uh, you know that that kind of experience. Yeah. So so that was there. It was also different in the sense that I thought I was wrong, but I thought that I knew exactly what was going to happen in the rest of my life. I had been told by the cabinet I was going to come back and I was going to be a pastor for a few years and then they were going to put me in the seminary. That was what they had sent me to Yale. And so I knew I was going to be a teacher in the seminary where I studied. I will go home every Christmas and, and summer. And I went back to Cuba in the, in the, well, in the summer after, after Castro came and, and everybody was exuberant about every good things that happening and so on. There was a whole lot of violence already. I mean, shooting all the people who had been for the previous regime and some people who hadn't been but were accused of having been. You know, it took me so long to get out because we had to fill so many papers to, to get back to Yale that next Christmas I didn't go home because I was afraid that I would not be able to come back in time for classes. Hmm. So, so that means that my last visit to Cuba for years and years were in, in, in 59, just uh, six months of the Castro home one. I was finishing, uh, I'm still planning to go back to Cuba. I was just finishing my dissertation when the CIA had the idea to invade Cuba <laughs> and uh, they failed. And, uh, but at that point it meant that I couldn't go back to Cuba because the government didn't want people who had been polluted by living in the state for so long to go back to Cuba. And so uh, I wrote a bunch of seminaries in Latin America to see where I could go. I ended up in Puerto Rico and I was there for eight years before I came to the States. Wow. So in a very real way, these international incidents that literally impacted your life yeah. because you could not then go back to your country as, as much anymore. And it sounds like there was this development of the new reality of what Cuba was going to be. Mm -hmm. Now, it, yeah. it, it yeah. wasn't immediate that there was this awareness, okay, Castro's taking over, so it's going to be what we now know. It seemed like it developed over time. Yes, yes. It took a while for all those things to 
to happen. And uh, there was a time when it was very difficult to be critical at all, mm. even among your friends, because friends had different degrees of awareness of what was going on. Mm. And whatever you said was going to offend somebody. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. And there was a great deal of hot blood about the issues that were going on with good reason. So it's funny because so many people that I argue about when I began having some critical views of it, a week, a month after that, went in exile. Hmm. Because people were changing all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in the midst of that, you mentioned earlier that you had the opportunity to study with another theological heavyweight, Karl Barth. When did that happen, and and, and what was that experience like for you? Well, after my second year at Yale, the the World Council of Churches and the World Student Federation had a scholarship that they had in Strasbourg. So I went to spend a year there in Strasbourg. Well, Strasbourg is about uh, two hours by train from Basel, mm-hmm. and Karabar was in Basel, so I would just go to, to seminars there every week for a year. Wow. And did you just kind of reach out to Karl Barth, or how did you end up meeting him? Well, uh, as a student at Strasbourg, I, I had the Student Federation contact uh, uh, the people at the University of Basel. Okay. And... We met every week in a, in a, in a pub. Uh, I mean, he, he had a seminar, but the seminar met in a pub. There was a room that you closed the doors so people I mean, would be noisy. And uh, uh, you sat there and, and talked about whatever he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that must have been a treat for you. You know, you had studied or read church dogmatics, and now you're sitting there at a pub talking across the table with the guy who wrote it. Well, I have had the opportunity to meet some very interesting people. I mean, and that's been not of my doing. Got it. I once, I once got to spend a week with Martin Luther King. Wow. Because somebody arranged uh, for him to come and visit Puerto Rico, and I was teaching there, and I was his interpreter. So, Okay, I, I can't just let that go. What was that experience like, and what did you learn about him, or what did he learn about Puerto Rico? Well, several things. Uh, uh, on the more serious side, the thing that I remember mostly because of what happened later, the apartment where we were staying was right next door to mine. So we were sitting in the little living room to his apartment. He and C.T. Vivian, who had come with him, and uh, he started talking about the Vietnam War and that it was not just an issue of race, it was also an issue of class, and he had to be concerned not only about black people but also about poor people because there's a clear connection, but it's not just race. There's all the other issues going on, and he was going to plan to bring poor people into the movement. And I remember C.T. Vivian saying, Martin, that's going to cost you. Mm. And he said, I know, but I have to do it. Wow. And as you know, very shortly after that, when he was organizing the March for the Poor, he was killed. Wow. So uh, I felt that, I, that somehow those words were somewhat a sign of a profound dedication mm. and, and a willingness to do what had to be done no matter what. Mm. On the other side, let me tell you, translating for him was a pain <laughs> because, he, as you know, when he spoke, it was like a, like, like Niagara Falls, you know, uh, just <laughs> running water constantly. I was supposed to be translating for him, so I, I had to pull his jacket and pull and pull. So, so he, he shut up for a moment and let me catch up with him. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's the other side. The other side of that. <laughs> I, uh, that's that, yeah. I can imagine trying to translate for the most prolific order of the 20th century, 
who <laughs> has soaring vocabulary and words and, and a cadence to it too. So he doesn't want to stop, yeah. right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> he, uh, he, he just, he's just going and going. And I'm trying to remember every one of those faces <laughs> that were building up to something. <laughs> Okay, so let me ask you about this, because one of the things that also has emerged and has had tensions, but also solidarity is the relationship between the black struggle and race in the, in the Latin and Hispanic context, you know, so what did that look like in terms of the black and brown relationship and maybe this conversation that's happening in Puerto Rico? So he's now in a brown context, but he's also known as being this icon talking about civil rights more in the African-American context? Well, I think it made it clear to me that we have to be aware of the divide and conquer mm. strategy. It's not a question of one minority group against the other minority group. It's a question of all minority groups together facing organizations and structures and practices and, and traditions that somehow... Uh, limit on oppression. Mm. And that part of what worries me, well, let me tell you, when I saw a cover years ago of Time magazine that said, Hispanics, uh, the new great minority, what I really heard saying was, watch out you black people, here come the Hispanics. And that was what I heard, you know, the establishment of Time magazine or whatever is behind it actually saying. Mm. I know that there are tensions, there are reasons for tensions, because, you know, when, when there's just a few crumbs, everybody fights for them. Mm. <laughs> you know? But you have to get beyond the place of just having the crumbs. When we come back, Dr. Gonzalez will share how his awareness of his own story and Hispanic culture opened up the Bible and Christian history in new and surprising ways. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Dr. Justo Gonzalez, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Sandra Van Upstel. This is where you're from. And I realized the very things I had learned growing up and the proximity that I had were the very things Jesus was speaking to in Scripture. And now that I know, ha, I'm responsible for that. I got to do something about it. And it happens to me all the time. People are like, oh, you're so brave. You're so brave that you talk about immigration all the time. It's so brave of you. You have so much courage. I'm like, I'm not brave and I'm not courageous. I'm a pastor of an immigrant congregation. This is not a political issue. This is not a social issue. This is a pastoral concern that I have in my community. Families are being split up. People are dying. They don't have food. They're looking for a way out. We have to respond. And so I don't have the choice. 
Now let's get back into our conversation with Dr. Justo Gonzalez on where you're from. Tell me more about like how your formation in seminary. So, you know, you've been at Yale and uh, also at University of Stroudsburg. How did that start to help you integrate the faith or theological aspect of what you believed with the need and the importance of speaking to these social problems that you were seeing around you? Well, I think part of what happened was all of that also helped me begin to look at history in a different way. Mm. What I started at Yale originally was the history of, of Christian thought, and it was all about theology. And as I reflected on all those issues later, it became very clear to me that Christian thought doesn't take place in its own vacuum, mm. that, that there is a social, political, economic context and that uh, thought very often reflects that, and that uh, you cannot do theology outside of a, of a social political structure, and you have to acknowledge that, you have to see how that affects you and how that affects whoever you're reading. So I think, yeah, there, there was a quite a bit of influence there. Yeah, you wrote in the story of Christianity, which is a seminary textbook that's used very widely, that the notion that we read the New Testament exactly as the early Christians did without any weight of tradition coloring our interpretation is an illusion. It's also dangerous illusion for it tends to absolutize our interpretation, confusing it with God's word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you see that tendency, that danger of not understanding history in its context in terms of how we thought about theology? How did you see that play out around you? Well, I could tell you different things. I could go into some much more scholarly answers, but let me tell you, just experientially, <laughs> okay, I had two experiences that, that helped me see that my reading of Scripture was very much connected with the context. And they both happened almost at the same time. I was in Puerto Rico teaching, and I was invited to preach for Holy Week at a very large United Methodist Church in Florida, at that time one of the largest churches in the whole country. And I had preached in English a few times, you know, to a couple of hundred people, 300, but to think about thousands of people, I was thinking, will these people understand me? And it was Holy Week, so I had to preach on Peter's betrayal, among other things. Mm. And uh, I remember as a kid hearing somebody preach about that sermon and say, how did people know that Peter was one of them? Oh, because if you have been with Jesus, it shows in your face. And I remember I must have been about eight or nine years old, I suddenly curb across the street from the church and look at people coming out and they said, nobody had been with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but now I was preaching on the same thing. I said, what am I going to say? And I started looking at that and I say that the woman says to Peter, you are one of them. Your accent betrays you. And I said, you know, they knew that he was one of them because he talked funny. He didn't talk like the Judeans. He talked like the Galileans. And I said, why is it that I never saw that before? Mm. And I said, well, it is because I was never in a situation where my accent was all that important. <laughs> you see? Now, the same thing works in reading other passages. I've just been studying Calvin again for a revision I'm doing on a, on a book, and uh, I've been working with him as an exile. Not as an exile when he got kicked out of Geneva, but an exile even in Geneva because he really was French. <laughs> and all the difficulties he had there and how that reflects in his theology, in the way he understands communion, in the way he understands the role of the state. Mm. And yet when we read about Calvin, all we, all we, we think that he's just writing as a general theologian, and there's no such thing as a general theology. Mm. 
That's so good. And I'm just kind of curious, like, when did you start to really understand this was an important contribution to the body of Christ for people to know how important it is for them to be aware of their history and even of the specific, you know, cultural context. So in your case, Hispanic cultural context, how did that start to become like a clear thing for you to understand and then also say, I need to tell people this? Well, it, it was partially uh, contact with the community and partially contact with people in other communities that, that brought similar things. Hmm. From the point of view of Latin America, obviously it was a time when uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and others were beginning to to talk in, in similar terms, I mean, about how the, the social, political, economic context affects the way you think and, and, and how theology can be used to, to oppress people and so on. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when Jim Cohn began making uh, statements that were very significant about uh, the African-American experience and, and, and how that relates to religion, and not only in the positive sense of how it helps the African-American people understand the faith, but also how they have been told ways of understanding the faith that in themselves are oppressive. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was that kind of conversation with, with, with those people uh, and others. I mean, uh, uh, some friends that I had from the Philippines that were also beginning to talk about this. It's a global thing. It's not just a Latino thing. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the perhaps the greatest theological discovery of the 20th century is that all theology is contextual Mm. and that there's no such thing as general theology. Mm. Do you think that it's an accurate description for it to be labeled in a specific way, like Hispanic theology or liberation theology, or do you just look at it as theology? I I don't care what it's called. (laughs) (laughs) As long as there's not one thing that's called theology and another thing that's called Hispanic theology or liberation theology. Right. Because... Every theology has adjectives. Mm. And if you're going to have what you call general theology, uh, you should call it male-white theology. <laughs> if you're willing to call what you call general theology male-white theology, I'm quite willing to call what we do Hispanic theology. So let me um, reflect on a common concern or critique that you know I've heard when we talk about theology in context, right? Some people get concerned that if we talk about all theology as contextual, does that mean that we're going to a place where we're basically undermining absolute truth or saying that there's no real specific, clear perspective about who God is, that it's all just contextual? How do you respond to that? I respond by saying that the place where I most clearly meet absolute truth is in a very contextual moment in history, some 20 centuries ago, in a very contextual man whose name is Jesus, and that if you cannot take Jesus's contextuality, you cannot take his truth either. Mm-hmm. And what is some of that contextuality that you see in Jesus? Well, he's a, he's a Galilean a Jew who, as a Jew, is looked at as cans by the Roman Empire and, and, the, and the Greeks and the Roman culture. As a Galilean, is looked at askance by the Jews and somehow has to bring God's word to all Jews and all, everybody around him. And I think that is the situation of the church always. The church is uh, very often, it has to be living in a, in a world where all kinds of political things impinge on it and where 
social economic issues impinge on it, and somehow you have to be able to proclaim the truth of Jesus within that context. Mm. But you don't proclaim the truth of Jesus by saying just, oh, Jesus is just a general figure that doesn't exist in a particular time and so on. No, no, it's a very a contextual thing, and that's why the, well, the creed makes it very clear. You know, he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. That means in a particular context. Mm, got it. And that reminds me, in your book, The Mestizo Augustine, you mention this word that you use to talk about Augustine's experience, and it sounds like maybe from what you just described, Jesus is. It's a mestizaje? Mestizaje, yes. Mm-hmm. Tell me mm-hmm. about mestizaje and why is that such an important concept to understand the gospel and even, you know, people like Augustine and even the Hispanic experience? I think it's particularly important today because today everybody's talking about purity, you know. Oh, my ancestors, I know, they, they're all from Scotland or from wherever. And the truth of the matter is that uh, all the human race is all mixed up. <laughs> and that race is an invention that society has used in order to justify injustices it wants to justify. So that the first thing is to understand that there's no such thing as a pure culture. Culture is a dialogue with the environment mm-hmm. constantly. And that environment includes other cultures. So cultures never grow out of themselves they grow out of the encounter with others. How much of the New Testament was written in Jerusalem? Zip. Mm -hmm. How much of the New Testament was was written in the encounter of of Christians with Jews, with society, and so on? All of it. So that that encounter is crucial for human development. Mm -hmm. Now, what I was doing with Augustine, which is what people very often don't, don't see, is that Augustine is partially African. His mother is African. His father is Roman. And as so very often happens with people who are marginalized, his mother wants him to be Roman because that's going to make him move up. But she doesn't want to be too Roman (laughs) because that's going to corrupt him and not make him be a true Christian. (laughs) And so when we study the Confessions of Augustine, that sounds like it's, it's basically... Uh, an intellectual struggle. It's much more than that. It's, it's a struggle about identity and about being able eventually to accept being a Roman African. <laughs> and how do you see that yeah. struggle be relevant even in your own experience, in your own story? Well, in many ways. Let me tell you, when I was uh, growing up, uh, there was such a connection between being a Protestant and being somehow connected to the U.S. <laughs> that there was a certain different kind of mestizaje there. In many ways, Protestantism sort of alienated me from my own Mm. culture, sort of. It couldn't do it fully because of the environment, because my parents, because my father was a novelist, because my mother was a professor of Spanish lit, you know. And so I had to appreciate that. But still, there was a sense that, that so many of our problems have to do with our not being like them. And it's difficult to get out of that. But when you get out of that, then you can really become Mm. yourself. That's beautiful. And now, like, kind of let's expand that and talk about how you see that tension playing itself out in the Hispanic experience more broadly. Well, I see it everywhere. Uh, 
Talk about the Hispanics in the U.S., okay? For instance, it is quite typical of parents who don't know English too well to insist in speaking English at home so the kids will learn English. And therefore, they don't learn Spanish. And then those kids are growing up and they discover they were really bilingual, they will be much more employable, they'll have all kinds of opportunities, you know, but that opportunity was missed because their parents were so concerned about helping my kids move ahead in society that you deny who you are. And then I see work in the other direction. I see, I see churches that have become the way of preserving the culture. Hmm. And so uh, here in, the, in this church, we speak Spanish. and We eat uh, whatever it is that we eat in our country. And we behave the way we do. And obviously what happens is that kid is also going to school with kids who don't, don't understand things the same way. And eventually they say, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. So it goes both ways. Wow. Yeah, I can see that. And then I think, too, another thing that I've experienced, I've passed a church here in Brooklyn, New York, where the average age is about 28, mostly black and mm -hmm. brown, very diverse church. And mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. of the things, because of those tensions and those extremes that you mentioned, a lot of people in the younger generation, Barna and Pew Research have kind of shown this, think that they need to just leave the church altogether because to be a part of it mm -hmm. seems not to be connecting to their ethnic experience of struggle. Is that something else that you have seen mm -hmm. in, in history or how that history connects to that idea now that Christianity is a white man's religion or that it's a part of my oppression, so I need to get away from it? Well, let me begin by by correcting that last thing because Christianity is becoming less and less a white yes. man's religion. Okay? According to demographic statistics, the typical Christian now is an African woman in Central Africa someplace. Okay? Uh, the center of Christianity has moved south drastically. And that's true both of Christianity at large and it's true of Protestant Christianity. So that that has uh, has changed. I, I think that part of the problem is that we have allowed ourselves to understand Christianity by a very narrow history that we have been told and we have followed. The history mostly of recent times. One of the things that we very often forget is that in the New Testament, a Christian's identity is first and foremost that of being a Christian. And that means that you're always an alien no matter where you are. There's a famous writing from the, probably the second century where the writer says that Christians are at home in every land and in every land they are an alien. Mm. And I'm thinking for, for this situation today, for us, talking about immigrants and citizenship and all that, Paul had the most coveted citizenship of his time. And what does he say? Our citizenship mm. is elsewhere. <laughs> so because he's a citizen of that other order, he is willing to share with people who are not citizens of the civil order in which he has a privilege. Mm. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's part of what it means to be a Christian today in this nation. Hmm. Is your citizenship in this land, is that your final citizenship? 
so so there's something that Paul is teaching us, even though he was a Roman citizen and at different points in the book of Acts, right? Exercises that citizenship as a way of yes, protecting yes. him mm-hmm. from flogging, that type of thing in Acts 22. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that his mm-hmm. ultimate posture is one of relinquishing that power. So in that case, is there something mm-hmm. to the fact that like he introduces himself as a bond servant, a slave in his letters, as opposed yes, to yes, a citizen? Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure that relinquishing is not okay. too strong because he doesn't just relinquish the power, he mm, uses the power. Okay. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm not saying, you know, if you have a coveted citizenship, don't use it. I'm saying it's your obligation as a Christian to use it for the other citizenship. Mm. Yeah. That's even, that's even stronger because that's that aspect of God then essentially redeeming and subversively undermining the the power of society in order to bring about the power of his kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also important because one of the things that very much bothers me when I talk to mostly white Christians in this country who are very conscious of social issues and really want to do something about it is a sort of a, a an overpowering sense mm-hmm. of guilt. How can we get rid of who we are, being who we are? And that's not the way mm-hmm. to go. The way to go is how can we use who we are for what we all ought to be? Mm, Yeah. And I want to get back into your story because we kind of left you in Puerto Rico, but you finished up at Yale and you mentioned at one point the plan was to be a pastor, but then it kind of shifted on you and you became more of a professor. Yeah. But then you changed from being a professor to then like being more of a speaker mobilizer. So what happened in the professorship that caused you to realize that your greatest impact might be not just in the classroom? Well, I think part of what happened was the change of teaching in Latin America where there were few people who could do what I was doing and uh, coming to teach in this country where there are a million people who could do what you were doing. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> and then you begin to say, well, now, it says something that I can do that's different than this. <laughs> Something that nobody else is going to do with that. That mm-hmm. has to be done. But there was something that you saw that you were looking at. Like, maybe there's this thing that I am uniquely qualified in this context to do. What is that thing that you saw that was important for you to commit yourself to? Well, I think it, it, it was helping the Latino church find ways to rediscover the gospel, to find new ways to, to live the gospel and to impact society around it. And that means basically uh, training leaders. Mm. And now the vast majority of Hispanic pastors never show up at a seminary. Mm. They have been self-formed or formed by tutors or formed by Bible institutes that are very often not recognized by anybody else. And part of what we have to do is how do we get these people to be heard, these things to be organized, to be joined, because they have something to contribute to the whole church. So it's not just a question of the Hispanic church, it's a question of the whole church. And you see, it's also, talking about these countries, it's partially a question of the future of this country. If it's true that uh, the Latino community is growing, a great deal of the future of the country will be determined by what Latino people think about uh, the goal of the country and the life and so on. And you go to our Latino barrios, and the the only permanent institution that's there is bars and churches and schools. The schools are places of violence. Uh, the bars, well, you know about them. 
And it's only the churches that, that go there. There are lots of do-gooders that come in to start a program and bring some federal money and do this and do a study and so on, and then they go home. You know. But the thing that's always there is the church. And it's the church, you know, the same happened with African-American communities. The church that produces the leaders. Uh, you look at the people who are now running for various offices, so no matter what party, and, and most of them have been shaped by leadership mm. in the church. <laughs> and what that church becomes will determine what these people become, and that will determine to a great degree what this country becomes. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely an important legacy. You know, and in that context, one of the things that I'm also interested in is in Manana Christian theology for a Hispanic perspective, you write about the connection of the yearning for going back to your own land. And I'll just quote you so that you can go from there. You said, this is who we are, a people in exile. By the waters of Babylon, we shall live and die. By the waters of Babylon, we shall sing the songs of Zion. Our Zion is not the lands where we were born, though we still love them, for those lands are lost to us forever. And in any case, since we have lived for a long time beyond innocence, we can never equate those lands with Zion. Tell me about how that yearning of the exile for our homeland and yet the realization that that maybe creates in us something different relates to the Hispanic experience and, and is something that's instructive for all of us. Well, it's not just me. I was reading the words of Calvin, yearning for mm. friends, okay? after he had been in exile forever and he hated what was going on in France. He, he, he disliked what happened, what France had become, but still he yearned for France. Now, obviously, he yearned for a France that no longer existed. <laughs> and I think that's part of the experience of exile. You yearn for a land that no longer exists. Mm. So you cannot just say, I'm going to take a boat and go home. You know, uh, home is no longer there. But yet you learn from some of the experiences you had from those lands. And in many ways, the way you understand your future hope, the way you understand the kingdom of God, is connected with that yearning. A yearning of fellowship, of easy understanding, uh, among others, of experiences that are fruitful and, 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 and edifying and all that. Uh, that's part of what we yearn. Very, very concretely. Let me just give you this one example. You know, when I was growing up, people would drop in at any time. There were always people coming around talking to you, everybody. As a matter of fact, in many towns, people had in the door they had a hook and eye. Hmm. So the door was not closed. The door oh, was okay. in the hook. And if the door is in the hook, it means that any neighbor can just come and knock it up and walk around and say, "Hello, so and so, how are you?" <laughs> Yeah. If you don't want people to come in because you're busy or something, you close the door. But the door is in the hook, that means um, you're welcome. <laughs> it's something similar to where you put balloons out there for an open house here today. But but the balloons are always up. <laughs> Generally, the balloons are up. Okay. <laughs> and somehow I yearn for that. Well, I can't wrap us up without asking about the other Dr. Gonzalez that lives uh, at your place. Mm -hmm. Tell me about, you know, meeting your wife and how she is an academic in her own right has, you know, even contributed to your understandings. Oh, enormously, enormously. We met at an ecumenical meeting of the National Council of Churches. It was the Commission on Faith and Order of the National Council of Churches. She was representing the Presbyterian Church. I was representing the United Methodist Church. 
Uh, she already was teaching church history at Louisville Presbyterian Seminary. I was teaching here at Candler. And her name before we were married was Gonzalez. She spelled it differently because they have been in this country for generations. And they have been in New York when New York was still New Holland. <laughs> <laughs> and so they spelled it different, but it's the same name. And we have very similar interests. We talked immediately about Arrhenius. When, when was this? When, yeah. when, what, what year did y'all meet? That was in 73. Okay. Gotcha. And, and the way you kicked game was to talk about early church fathers. I, I, yeah, that That's was your right. approach. And, and, the, and the, significant, the significance of Arrhenius for liberation theology. That was the first your conversation. First. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since, I mean, uh, we have done all kinds of things together. We, we would very often preach together. We lecture together. I mean, sort of you know, give and take. Uh, we have written together. Everything I write, she checks. Actually, most of what I write, she tells me what to say first. <laughs> <laughs> so she teases me. She says that I don't have blood. I have printer's ink. <laughs> and, and that uh, I have never had an unpublished thought, which is true. But I also answered that I have had many an unthought published. So, <laughs> so we have fun. We have fun. What's been one thing in particular that she has helped you understand deeper about, you know, your faith or your scholarship? Well, obviously, clearly the issues of women. I mean, when uh, in the whole Presbyterian Church, in any of the traditional academic fields, uh, she and a, another colleague were the first two, uh, she at Louisville and the other woman at Princeton, in any of the Presbyterian seminaries. And when she was here at Columbia, she was the only one for 10 years, Columbia Seminary. So that was very similar to my experience. I mean, when I was uh, at Candler, I was tenure, but even in tenure track, there was no Latino in any ATS accredited seminary, Protestant seminary in the whole country. Wow. Just one. And so there are many, many connections, and then, and then seeing, putting those together. And that also became strategic in many ways, because when we were, we don't do that so much now, but when we were doing a whole lot of speaking during the early years of our marriage, it was the time of dealing with equal rights amendment and all that kind of things. And so she would get invited very often to speak to a group of women or people in a white church who wanted to talk about women's issues. And she would say, okay, but I'll come with my husband and we'll both speak. And we were going to speak about, about women's issues and also about race and culture issues. Mm. And that wasn't what they wanted, but that's what they got. And then as, as things began changing... And you began, everybody was talking now about Latinos' issues. Then we still say, well, okay, we come and talk about Latino issues, but we also have to talk about, about gender mm-hmm. issues. And that's not always what they want, but that's what they get. <laughs> <laughs> so in many ways, I think that's, that's happening all the time, yeah. Mm. You mentioned earlier that you one of the things you really wanted was to be able to equip Hispanic teachers and, and whatnot. So tell me about how AETH the Association for Hispanic Theological Education came about and why you decided to be a part of founding it? Well, uh, the reason why it came about is simply that there was a, a very large disconnection between uh, the various groups or among the various groups uh, that are somehow stakeholders in the training of Latino uh, leaders for the church. Very few go to seminary. This improving now, but still, the percentage of Latina Latino students in, in ATS accredited seminaries is a little bit over four percent of the population. Same thing with the faculty, and obviously that's way way below 
the proportion of the Latino population within the country. <laughs> and uh, if you count that among the various groups, Latinos are the ones that are most church-going. <laughs> that makes it even worse. Which means that uh, most of the Latino, Latino leaders are formed in different ways. They either just begin a, a church and then somehow they're meeting in the living room and that eventually becomes a church and they become a pastor. Or they go to Bible Institute and, and uh, they're certified by somebody that nobody else accepts, uh, nobody else uh, accredits, but they are now a pastor and then they go and start a church. Uh, some years ago, there were over a thousand Protestant Hispanic churches in L.A. County alone. Wow. At that point, uh, that's years and years ago. Now it's probably more than 3,000 or so. But at that point, in the whole Western region of the Association of Theological Schools, all seminaries, Catholic and Protestant and everything, and that Western region is, is uh, almost half of the country, there were a couple of hundred Latino mm. students, okay? So who's producing these people? Mm. And how do we help that to develop? At the same time, people go to seminary, and when they come out, they are very much qualified to work in an Anglo church. <laughs> but they have been pulled out of their own community, they have pulled out of their own experience, they have been disconnected, and they find it very difficult now to go and talk the religious language that the people talk. Okay? So how do we bring those together? And part of what ATH is doing constantly is bringing all those together. One of the most significant things that's happened is that now uh, ATS, that's the Association of Theological Schools, which is the accrediting agency for theological seminaries in the U.S. and Canada. They have agreed with ATH, the Association for Hispanic Theological Education, that if ATH certifies a certain Bible Institute program meets certain requirements, people from there can go directly into seminary without going to college. Mm. Because that's one of, one of the great limits on getting more mm. population into seminaries. They have a part of the other thing that ATH has done. Let me tell you, in Spanish, there are lots of very, very good theological books. So good that nobody can read them. Okay? They're highfalutin, you know, all the scholars and so on, big, thick books, but they're not reachable by the people or even by the pastors themselves. And there are lots of very popular, easy books to read that nobody should read. <laughs> Now, how do you get the people who can write those good, complicated books to write so that this is available to the people? And part of what ATH has been doing is that. They have a whole series of Bible commentaries uh, written by people who are professors, scholars on, on, on the Bible, but written at the level of the church and for the church and, and dealing with the issues of the church. It's, that's something else that they do. They have created now a network of Bible institutes and, and theological institutions. So they have a, an association of various kinds of institutions teaching. And they are all working together. So they're doing all kinds of things. Yeah, no, that is so much. We started this conversation and you shared about how, you know, your mother was an educator and a principal at a school. And your father also was an educator, but also had this vision of making agricultural knowledge transferable to the, the masses, those who didn't have access. Do you see the connection? Like, do you see a symmetry between what they were doing and now what you've committed so much of your life to of both educating and trying to distribute this to the masses? 
Let me tell you, one of the greatest lessons that my father gave me, I must have been about third grade or something like that, and I had just done a some kind of an essay or something, and the teacher gave me a hundred. I came back very proud, and I gave it to my father. And You know, he was a writer, a novelist, and so on. He looked at it, looked at it, read it, and said, what were you trying to say? And I told him, and then he said, why didn't you say it? <laughs> in other words, I realized at that point that I was being taught to write in order to impress people. Mm. And he was teaching me, you write in order to tell people. Mm. And to me, I think that was, uh, in many ways, very formative because right now when I write, I always have 10 or 12 people in front of me. That I, they have names. They don't know it, but they have names and I know them. And, and I'm telling so-and-so, I'm telling this. <laughs> That's so good. I'm grateful that you love to write and that we have had the benefit of, with so many of your books, too many to name, that have really reached and helped so many people around the world. I'll leave with this last question. You write in the story Luke tells, Luke's unique witness to the gospel. You write, if this were simply a story about the past, it would be appropriate to write at the conclusion of Acts 28 as at the conclusion of a film, the end. But since the story is unfinished, it is more appropriate to conclude it with RSVP like an invitation that awaits a response. I'm curious about how you see the story as a historian and as someone that is in the present, how you see the story continue to be written of the church and what is the part that we get to play in that? To me, the main reason why I study history is not just curiosity and fun, and it's both, that's also true, but it's also because history is the only way that we have to understand or try to discern anything about the future. When an economist warns us about a possible recession, they don't have a crystal ball. All that they have is a bunch of history of previous recessions or what happened at the time and what they think caused them and so on and how that is similar is not similar to what's happening today. When somebody tells me that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, I, there's not, no guarantee for that, except that it's happened for generations and generations. <laughs> The only way that we have in order to live into the future wisely is to know the past. And the better we know the past, the more prepared we are for the unexpected eventualities of the future. Mm -hmm. And when those unexpected eventualities come up, the only responses we'll have will be what we have learned from the past. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman and was engineered by Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Seamus and Jenny for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. And a special thank you to Rich Perez, without whose help we would not have been able to do this episode. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.